just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the podcast for speakers and professionals or anyone who wants to present with impact. Hosted by presentation persuasion coach John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, there couldn't be an easier way to get started than getting started with Buzzsprout. They have all the tools and resources you need for starting a podcast and getting out to all the major podcasting networks. Check out the link in the show notes and get your podcast started today. Well, welcome back to the show. If you're joining us again, if you're new to the show, great to have you with us. And today we are continuing with our theme of humor in presentations and comedy as a tool of influence and persuasion as well. And we are joined by a professional stand-up comedian who has appeared in shows like BBC Two's MASH Report. If you ever get to see that, it's a show that I particularly love as well. And he has his own podcast as well, which he's going to tell us more about, which is Comedians Solving Problems. We're introducing the rule of six. Rule of six. I mean... It's not going to be as good as the rule of three, because as comedians, we all know, we've all done the basic training. The rule of three yeah. is um, uh, you establish a theme, you propagate the three theme, and then they're, they're subverting the theme. It doesn't mm. sound as funny when you say it like that, but that is that is the <laughs> plot line to most jokes that you've ever enjoyed. Yeah. That, it works. The rule of six is just going to be less funny. Mm. All, right, all right, I got one for you. Um, there's an Englishman, a Scotsman, Welshman bloke from the Isle of Man, um, fellow from the Isle of Wight, and an Irishman all going to a bar. This might take a while. <laughs> Quite a lengthy joke that you end up getting into there, right? Eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that highlights the big problem. Yeah. It highlights the big problem indeed. Well, uh, welcome to the show, Steve. Great to be speaking with you. Hello. Nice to be here. Look at this modern technology. It's, it's the joys of Zoom that we're able to, you be in London, right? I'm in Valencia in Spain, and we can have a chat like we're in the same, almost like we're in the same room together. It's wonderful. Um, great to be able to speak with you today. And one of the reasons why I really have to bring you on the show is that the theme that we've been running, uh, one of the themes we're running on the show is about bringing more humor into presentations, and um, especially for people who don't don't think that they can do it or don't think that they have a clue how to add any humor into what they're doing or maybe even people who are already doing some of that and want to get better at it uh, or maybe even thinking about doing something along the lines of comedy in part of their presentations uh, but tell us a little bit about, more about what it is exactly that you do when you, when you decided that you wanted to become a, a stand-up comedian let's hear a bit about your background Okay, um, background is scientist, so university I did chemistry. That's not a normal way into comedy. I'm aware of that. Um, so I was, if anything, I didn't really think I had that much of a great sense of humor because my sense of humor is mismatched to that of my family. 
Um, so I grew up thinking I'm quite a serious analytical kind of guy. I guess I ought to go off and study atoms. Um, and then when I, when I went away uh, from uni- uh, to university, I started writing jokes. I've always liked the logic of jokes. I've got quite a weird logical brain. And then I started writing jokes for radio presenters when I was at university and then just started to get that urge to do it myself. In fact, the, there was a tipping point. I wrote a joke for a radio presenter and I listened to them deliver it so badly and I just thought, you can't complain about people delivering your material unless you're going to get up there and do it. So I started to get into stand-up comedy. I mean, it means giving up a normal life. But then who wants a normal life? Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm quite happy that I've managed to somehow pay for things by putting words in a certain order, which still boggles my mind. How is that? They're just words. And yet if you get them in the right order, you deliver them in the right way, you can bring joy to people. And somehow that, that feeds back into the bank account. And is it one of those things that many people talk about when they try it and you start getting some answer from people that you get hooked? Yes. I mean, I, as soon as you start, you will love it and hate it because the big deaths are right at the start of trying it. And the, the real shame with this is that you have to go through the tough times to learn how to do it well. Um, it's not one of those things where you can just read a book and suddenly be excellent at it. You've got experiences, you know, doing the 10,000 hours, that kind of concept. Um, But if you don't enjoy it, you'll never get past the first few gigs. So it's one of those self-filtering things. The only people who still do stand-up comedy beyond their first attempt are the people who get something from it. And maybe, I mean, I'm a big believer in, in the concept that there's a, a hole in our souls of, of stand-up comedians. You know, why do you need a room full of strangers to give you approval? It's probably not that healthy, but it's not a bad way of um, fixing that problem. Indeed. But I think at some point you have to know that you really want that and that you're willing to sort of say, well, like you said, say goodbye to a normal life because it's going to be a a bit different for you. But but when you do start to encounter those situations where it's not always going to be a hit, not every joke is always going to land. And in the earlier days, whilst you're finding your feet, you have to push through a lot. And I think that those in any area, those are the times when people drop away from things because Mm -hmm. it, it gets to be too challenging. Must be some part of you that thinks what's on the other side of that is worth, is worth pushing through. Yeah, I suppose the, the downside is is often you can imagine if you're a stand up comedian, it'll be something like half one in the morning at a motorway service area on the way back from a gig that didn't feel worth it. And if you still enjoyed that day, if you still are driven to do that again next week, because it might be better, then you're probably hooked and you can keep doing it. Um, and I remember before I even went to university, I, there was some I used to dabble in hospital radio and stuff and there was a guy working there who said just have a think about how many hours of your life before you die at an old age are going to be spent at work and it was really it felt like an odd thing to say to a teenager but you know i'd just done my gcse's or whatever and i was trying to work out what to do with my life and he said just just think about how much of your life is going to be work and now tell yourself you know are you going to enjoy it or not and it just made it so clear that I know people sometimes end up with jobs that they don't enjoy. Uh, my, my dad did, did like 35 years in a factory and I had the same job for a summer holiday that he did for 35 years. And it gave me such respect for the fact that he managed to do that because he was paying for the, for the family that I was lucky enough to grow up in. But I didn't enjoy those eight weeks. So given the chance to do something that you enjoy for a big slice of your life, yeah, I say chase it, whether it's comedy or not, whatever the downsides are, if you're willing to stomach them to have that thrill, then you find the thing. Yeah, I feel for, for myself, I'm, I'm similar in some ways that much, very much one of those people that 
um, I don't want to wait to retirement to enjoy my life. <laughs> it's yeah. like I want to enjoy it all through my life and, and hopefully get to enjoy uh, a great retirement as well if I ever decide that I'm going to retire. But uh, the whole thing is that when, when you're doing stuff you love doing, you may never want to. You, you may feel that you want to keep doing that and, until you just can't anymore and yep. continue on. But, it, but it's a, a great thing. At what point did you start to find yourself feeling that you were really getting a feel for it and that the audiences were responding more how how long do you feel, feel that took for you i mean within the first year i was getting some gigs that were going well the problem is you you turn up with a bit of a random factor like you roll the dice and it might be one of those gigs that doesn't go well but i was getting enough of them that went well because i'd spent ages years writing jokes beforehand um because it you know i was writing jokes at university but it wasn't until i was like 24 or 25 that i was brave enough to have a crack at standing on stage so I'd spent a lot of time looking at the structure of humor and working out why one sentence was funnier than another. And it seems like a real simple concept to try and get your head around, but it's probably a life's work if you were really to, to get into it. You know, having the most functional, funny word has to be right at the end of it. And then I mean, that will make sense because if the real key word that would make you laugh comes early in the sentence, you can't laugh yet because you need to listen to the rest of the sentence. So that's just basic housekeeping but the more you get into it you can learn all these little tricks that just make a punchline be punchier and a funny thing be funnier and then you get these bizarre rules like words with k's in them are meant to be funnier than words without k's in them not if it's a silent one i'd imagine um you, yeah you can learn all the different mini techniques but then so i had those in my head for when i was on stage and then i started to learn quite early that i could go off script and be safe because I'd learnt my script well enough. I knew the material well enough to get back to it. And as soon as you know that, then you're brave. It's, it's like being willing to swim that little bit further out from the boat. As long as you've practiced getting back onto the boat, you feel a bit safer to do it. And then the next thing, you know, I wasn't really sticking to material. I was just chatting with the audience and using those things I'd learned so much through the writing. So it very much comes into, then from what you're, from what you're saying, the thing of at some point when you mastered the basics of what you're doing that you have a bit more freedom to improvise you understand stuff more and like you mentioned the ten thousand hours thing which i think comes mainly from malcolm gladwell mm -hmm. in the book blink and and that's one of the things in that there he was talking about was um was also about being able to spot things uh, and just know why it works or know why it doesn't work or maybe not be able to explain it, but you just know. He's like, I know this works and I know that doesn't work. Just, just from having the experience and having the understanding of it, you, that um, like a, a curator of a museum might be able to spot a fake instantly and maybe may not be able to tell you exactly why it's a fake, but can just see something in it that's saying, no, that doesn't look authentic to me. And that comes from all this, all this time of experience. And I think that's one of the things that we... Uh, often in life don't get past that point of what we call conscious competence of being able to like the learning stage of doing something to get to a mastery stage where it is more intuitive and you don't have to think about it like most of us have that experience with driving right i mean you don't most of us when you get in a car you don't have to think about every single process that you're going to do like you did when you're a learner you just get in your car and you drive and quite often you can get to the end of your journey and kind of forget the whole journey it's like it's gone in an instant and uh, because you don't have to consciously think about it so much it's automatic behaviors it gets a bit more like that 
Yeah, it's a really good analogy, actually, because your first gig is probably as bad as your first driving lesson, which is amazing how bad, you know, there are so many skills you've got to do all at once. From the stage point of view, you've got stagecraft, delivery, remembering the material, all of these things. It's too much for the conscious brain to try and pay attention to. If you do it long enough, it'll move into the, the, the unconscious part of your brain that can just absolutely nail it. Also, when you're a learner driver, you get beeped at more, which is probably like getting heckled. So, yeah, yeah that, that analogy keeps working. <laughs> great and how would you describe your particular style of comedy then you say, you say it comes very much from a logical approach yeah. um so i'm in terms of category it's mainly i mean you'd categorize it as topical and observational but that's because my interests are the news i'm quite obsessed with that which has been really lucky for my career and observational is such a catch-all word for what comedy is these days unless you're really getting into the comedy of whimsy or really doing one-liners but even one-liners can end up being somewhat observational it's almost just a byword for for stand-up comedy these days um but yeah my my writing style is often to spot the logical flaw or to do those things of the simile type joke is an easy way to add humor to things that aren't necessarily that funny um the ad ridiculum or the you know just see how far you can stretch this concept someone presents you with a concept stretch it so far and at some point it's silly and, and that's why I think there's quite a lot of comedy that comes from what looks like a logically superior point of view, because it's coming with comedy. Someone says something, you point out the flaw in it with that tone of sarcasm, possibly, or any comedic delivery, and it makes it so hard to disagree with. Um, and not, not that I'm necessarily saying you're right if you're saying it when you're funny, but it's harder for people to think you're wrong if it gets a laugh. Because like that societal pressure, you say something that's logically true, a room full of people laugh, really difficult to disagree with that because we're just so tuned to be afraid of making the mob turn against us. In the world of public speaking that I often exist in, um, humour and comedy are things that a lot of people don't approach or they even try to get into because they just think they can't do it. If you were, if someone came to you and said, hey, look, uh, Steve, I need a bit of help. I want to try and at least be a little bit humorous with a presentation or a speech that I'm doing. What kind of advice do you think you'd be able to give to someone in that situation? Um, the first piece of advice out the door is to say good because you already can do it. I mean, it's not true of everyone. That, that's a slight lie. There are some people who can't be funny because they're just not funny. And if you've never made anyone laugh your entire life, I wouldn't try and start doing it in the middle of doing a presentation. But mm -hmm. I mean, pretty much everyone has a laugh with friends. So we've learned the skills. So uh, even in the clip that we played about the rule of three, everyone knows it, whether you know it or not. It's like everyone knows the subjective, objective form of he and him. And yet people don't necessarily know who and whom. And the thing is, because no one analyzes it like, oh, I will pay attention to the room. What's uh, the rule here? What's the object or the subject in the sentence? You just know whether it should be he or him, unless you're a pirate. So yeah. for everyone else, um, we've got these rules already hard baked into us. And so many people already know enough of the rules of comedy to be funny. So the first thing to do would be to tell people to have confidence in their ability to become uh, funny. Because that's often where people fall down. First time you do a gig, you see people unsure in their tone, looking at the floor. Now, if you're doing a professional presentation anyway, these, these things shouldn't be cropping up. But maybe they come back a bit if you're trying comedy because you're nervous. So... First piece of advice is to know that you are funny. As long as you've made another human at some point in your life laugh, get the confidence to know you, you are funny. Um, and then, yeah, make it look like you're not trying to be funny would be my other piece of advice. The way that 
even with stand-up, um, the great punchlines work because no one's expecting you to say a funny thing then. Mm. Um, and that, I mean, on stage you can get away with it. Everyone knows they're there for comedy. But if you're doing a presentation, if you can sneak something in when no one expects it, the reward will be twice-fold, and then you'll feel confident, you'll feel good, and maybe you'll be funny again. What, what would be your own process then for starting to put together a, a comedy set? Um, for me, I mean, I'm constantly writing because I, I, I write for other people and I now do this online show. So if I spot any new story that inspires me to want to point something out, basically, um, I write it. And then I, it's like a kid singing into a hairbrush. If I'm at the, in the home on my own, I'll end up doing the set as I walk around, just saying the words out loud. Because I, I often believe anyone who's writing a script should say it out loud even for simple things like if you put too many F's and THs in a sentence all at once, you're going to fall over and look like a fool. So get that sorted. Uh, And then, yeah, I just start to say it. And if you can get your mind in that place where you imagine I'm on stage, I'm saying this, it changes the way that your brain comes up with a sentence and you'll probably pick like the better stand-up line for it. So I'll, I'll walk around the house just talking to myself, pretending I'm a stand-up comedian, singing into the hairbrush. And then I would jot down bullet points because I never worry about being word perfect in a script. Yeah. Because if you do for stand-up, I think if you're spending so much brain power wondering if it was a, uh, a of or a with or an on in that sentence, you're not paying attention to the key bit. You can waffle all you like in the sentence before the punchline. You just got to get the second half of the punchline right, and all of a sudden, you look very natural and very polished and funny. Yeah. So it's like knowing, knowing the dance well enough to be able to move around, like you know what you're doing, and anything that missteps away from the, the true form looks natural because you just yeah. flow with it. Yeah. Things don't, things don't really uh, know... Um, things don't really always make sense until you say them out loud as well. Like sometimes when you write stuff down, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. One of the things that I see in professional speaking or even amateur speaking that uh, kind of, I guess it kind of makes me cringe, but you can really tell when someone hasn't practiced their speech. And so many people will go up onto a stage and think that they can just wing it. And some people get away with it. Some people and some people do really well with that. But the majority of people, I mean, vast majority of people, do not, and actually really need to practice and prepare. And whether it's just not thinking that's important enough, but the, one of the bigger reasons why people have so much stage fright or performance anxiety is because they haven't practiced their stuff well enough, and they don't really know it. That's where they get the fear of forgetting stuff. And, uh, you know, in, uh, in public speaking, one of the things to say is like, re- memorize the start and the end of your presentation mm-hmm. and in the middle, you know, know it well enough to be able to uh, move around and, and get to your main points, but don't be too precise about it. Uh, give yourself the, the space for a bit of improvisation. That, that, that then allows you to be able to um, feel confident in what you're going to get out there and do. And I think if you have that, that's the point at which you need to be able to get up on the stage, get out of your own head and actually be there for your audience and, and connect with them. And I know you've, you said in some of these chats that we've had about the importance of connecting with your audience. Yes. Yeah. Um, for the comedy side of it, I mean, I'm sure this is true for presentations, but I think it's heightened for comedy. You have to get the audience to like you in some way because you never laugh at someone that you don't like. If you imagine you're in the office and there's one person that you always hate, and if they come up and you're having a little chat with a few people and they say something that's funny, it doesn't matter how funny the, the sentence is. If you hate that person, 
there is no part of your brain that wants to give and connect in that way. So a lot of it is establishing, people would say, rapport. But it is just that that connection with the audience where they like you enough um, to to want to give, to want to share with you that moment of, of getting a laugh out of them. Um, so that's really important. People say first 30 seconds on stage is when you make that connection. The audience will judge whether they want to be your friend or want your approval. There's two different ways of connecting with the audience. And both work. I mean, a lot of stand-ups go for the second one. It's, it's a, it depends if you're a high-status or a low-status stand-up comedian. So there are those those stand-up comedians who stand on stage, often with a, you know, the, the alcoholic drink on stage, and they are so cool and they are so the alpha of the room, you want the approval of the person on stage. So part of your brain just wants to laugh and join in with a group that's enjoying them. There's also like the self-deprecating humor where you like the person because they're not in any way threatening. Um, and there's a lot of that going on as well in the world of comedy. So whichever way you pick, you get the audience to connect with you. And then when you say something, they will respond kindly and warmly because they're enjoying the moment. And that's it's another type of enjoyment. Do you, do you feel that comedy to some degree always has to be putting someone down, whether that's yourself or, or someone else? Is that really a, a, a is that some people have argued into theory of humor and comedy that that's always an essential part of humor? No, I don't think it is at all. I know many jokes are like that, but there are loads of things that you can find funny where no one's suffering. I mean, even just, so puns in general, we have a massive category of, of humour. Um, it's, it's often, most puns don't have a victim. You know, that's, so that's a big slice of jokes that, that aren't based on someone suffering. Um, uh, now, the punching up concept, of, so if you're mocking authority, then I suppose there is a victim, but it comes from a position of David and Goliath, and you know, you're the, the funnier David, um, which then doesn't really seem like anyone's suffering in that. So yeah, I, I don't think you have to be nasty at all or have to have a victim for a joke to make you laugh. One of the main reasons for me wanting to be talking to people like yourself about humour as a presentation form, really, isn't just that it makes presentations more enjoyable, but also that humour is uh, an incredibly important part, uh, uh, is an incredibly important tool of influence and persuasion that I don't think really gets talked about nearly enough as being that when you look at sort of uh, the research and information about influence and persuasion you don't generally see too much stuff about humor there so what are your feelings about about comedy or humor as a tool of influence yeah i think i'm surprised there's not more research in it there's some money to be made here let's do some research um yeah i so for the mash report and the, the satirical topical stuff that i do humor is often a great sugar coating for a pill that you want to try and get across if you stand on stage and rant about your political point of view, you will change no mind at all. Like Mostly what will happen is the people who agree with you will cheer because they already agree with you. Well done, you've just preached to the choir. The people who disagree with you will become even more defensive and you can just continue to waste each other's time for the rest of that thing. But if you can have a nugget of information which is surrounded by this enjoyable joke, you can get it across. You can change minds better by by not ranting, by bringing people in on the joke. Um, and as I mentioned a bit earlier on, I think this is one of the most important things that no one really mentions about stand-up, the fear of laughter. So if you're in the audience, people say, oh, it must be really worrying because there are people who will heckle. There's probably five people in an entire audience who have the personality type to heckle. And you can kind of, you've done it for a while, you can spot them. And you've got the ability to make a group mock that person and that's the biggest fear. We are so 
like obsessed with the idea of not being mocked by society, by, by being part of society. And we evolved that way because you'd starve to death on your own outside the nice forest if you didn't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that is a great way of speaking to someone's lizard brains. If you get a, a piece of information across that elicits a laugh from what in that room looks like everyone in society, it's really hard to disagree with it because every part of you wants to start to think, oh, I'm, I get the joke and I agree with the logic of the joke, so I agree with the point. Yeah, we, we are all mocking the government for doing this or mocking society for being like this. Um, and actually, that that starts to make humour be able to get close to something that's less healthy than persuasion and a bit more towards coercion, if I'm brutally honest. I think if you used it evilly, you could make people think things that they don't actually think. Something like uh, the MASH report, and I know like audience outside of the UK may not know what the show is, but I mean, it's, it's quite a sort of news topical and some degree politically topical um, format of, of show um, with like guest comedians of... Um, uh, I guess kind of like satirical news desk kind of things and uh, and, a, and a main host who maybe does a bit of a, a monologue. So what's interesting to me about those kinds of formats is that uh, for a lot of people, that's really where, they, where they're getting a lot of their maybe le- less biased or actually critical information about certain news news items or events that are going on that for some reason a lot of major news outlets aren't really reporting in a way that's very helpful uh, or missing lots of bits of actually quite important information or context around things that actually puts a bit of a different light on it that you're getting from more from comedy shows often than you are from uh, from mainstream news yeah, it just it's easier to to watch it that way. I, th- I imagine most of the pieces of news are probably also available on you know a news website or even in the actual newspapers. But it's less fun reading the Telegraph from front to back than it is watching a comedy show because you get the little treats of the jokes all the way through. Um, I know myself because I try and stay on top of various types of topical and satirical comedy. So if I can find a way of watching Stephen Colbert, he'll be talking about topics to do with you know, the US Senate that I wouldn't care about. And if someone said, here's an article on it, I'm not going to read that. But because those jokes will keep you going and you look forward to, to that moment where you get to laugh at something without knowing it or putting any effort in, and I think we're all tuned to minimize effort, um, you know, save that energy. You've enjoyed listening to someone talk about a new story. And at the end of it, you've got that info and you've not tried to get the info, which is another way that, that um, comedy can be a useful tool to give people information and it also could be used in a more malicious way i guess as they say about the difference between a chisel you know it can make a work of art or it could really mess someone up um so it's it's how you use a tool that makes it a good or a bad thing but comedy comedy is a great way to make people enjoy paying attention rather than make it seem like it's the hard work they need to do For, for me comedy is an interesting one like nearly always in the tools of influence and persuasion and they can be used for for good or bad uh, Robert Cialdini, in his book Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, teaches like six um, six weapons of influence, he calls them. And in his book Persuasion as well, and you've got Robert Greene's uh, Laws of uh, Laws of uh, Persuasion as well. And uh, and more besides, you know, there, there are things that can easily be used for good or uh, bad purposes. Comedy a bit less so, in, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, mm. potentially, yes, but a, a bit less so simply because, in my opinion, comedy, to, to some degree, requires a degree of empathy. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, think using it for something negative is difficult because the people who are more likely to do that are going to struggle with the empathy part. Yes, that's true. Yeah, it is. You have to understand the human condition to connect with other humans in that comedy way. So I suppose, yeah, it would be an, an odd personality type that somehow wanted to be that Machiavellian, but also really funny with it. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it is one of those tools that, that could be used unfairly or certainly always gets used with bias, but that's just because everyone's got bias. So I know in the, in the UK, there's a lot of talk about bias in comedy at the moment. Um, but I don't think you, you can't really solve that by taking comedy away. You know, you, you don't really balance the seesaw by taking everyone off it. You then just have a plank of wood that no one's using. Um, so you, sh- you can have more comedy representing other sides, but yeah, hopefully never in a malicious way. And that's one of the rules in comedy about, about punching up um, because that way no one's, no one's becoming victimized by the humor. And I think that if that remains ingrained in the comedian sensibility, then there shouldn't be that much harm that comes from it. And that, also there is part of it that if, if you make a room full of people laugh, you know you're connecting in a joyful moment. And there are only so many types of people who want to spread joy like that. If you're a truly evil person, you probably don't care about people enjoying a night out. Right. Why would you want to make people laugh? You'd be more more concerned perhaps with being able to control and manipulate them. Mm. And probably not through laughter. There are many other ways to do that that are very effective still and require certain levels of mind control. But I'm just wondering, like, from, from the perspective of, of being a comedian, like, if, if you have a particular observation on society and you can bring humour into that and highlight it, you, you know, one of the things that comedy does really well is holding a mirror up to society in a way that makes it acceptable to actually see some of these flaws and things that are going on, to laugh about them, but almost have a bit of uncomfortable laughter, like, yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that, that makes it very interesting and often very unique. Um, I want to come back to comedy as a, as a presentation tool. And because you said, you said to me that one of the things um, that we talk about is about getting people on your side using, using humour. I think we've already touched on that a little bit. But what would be, to your mind, the, way, the ways of making that work? When you talk about the connection, the rapport, is there anything more to look at then the i think when you get a joke that brings people together and again this is often observational humor as soon as you have that joke where the audience thinks oh yeah we do do that don't we that is one of those where you prove you're in the same group and so they get people on your side straight away and and it's bizarre that humor does it so well because if you stood on stage and just reminded people we're all humans and let's list the things that we have in common and then carried on with the presentation it wouldn't have any impact at all so it's it's a strange emotional thing that it seems like other animals don't do but for some reason we evolve this brain that's so complex one of the things that that is churned out of the system is this enjoyable this this need to enjoy shared humor mm. and i think it happens a lot so if you can be the person injecting that into the room then you're going to get people on your side. Um, and then the the other thing, yeah, I do think that using humor to back into a fact, so you could just say the fact and people would agree or disagree, and then you could try and logically argue it and the argument would be already known by the people who agree and already ignored by the people who've decided they disagree with you. If you back into it, make a joke about the fact, and then from it conclude your original point, 
you've got people coming with you on a journey. I'm not saying you're going to convince everyone, but because you're going on that journey together rather than it's a confrontational, here's a sentence and you're wrong if you disagree with it. If you have this, aren't we all silly because this, and that that means we should think this. If you can walk people in that way, it it is more impactful. Mm. And it, it is, it's a nicer moment for everyone because actually you might be right. You know, we, we talk about these things being useful p- for persuasion. And I suppose we have this natural tendency to think, oh, you little tinker trying to convince people that you're right. You might be. You know, there's, there's no shame in, in having a really well-framed argument. And if humor is part of that and people get on your side because of the humor, that's great. You are hopefully spreading the love. What, what are some of the things that you think might be quite particular to um, English or British humor? There is, I watch so much American stuff and so much British stuff. Straight down the middle, the difference is um, if you're doing British humor, you had better not say anything that makes you sound too good. Um, <laughs> we, like not, what? what? What do you mean by that? Oh, if you're not the underdog in a sense, you know, if you're not uh, at least insulting yourself as part of a humble brag, you know, if you are, if you are making yourself feel like you've got some kind of pride in something, the audience will want to see you fail. Right. And then the, the flip side is you watch American stuff where someone will just claim that they've done something or uh, a stand-up comedian will mention a TV show they've been in. Whoa, they all like, well done, yeah, you go you, over in the UK. In fact, a great way of, of uh, phrasing that is if you're the MC for an evening, you go on, you warm up the audience, you do some chatting, some jokes, then you bring on an act. And um, in the UK... That's, they just say your name and bring you on. But sometimes you get American comedians who will then give you a list of things that you should mention before you bring them on, talking about which specials they've done for HBO, which comedy things they've done, which albums they've got out. And you just think to yourself, if I say that, that audience will hate you before they've met you. <laughs> like, don't lead with your CV in the UK. If, if, here's, here's a list of boasts for the next act. Yeah. See what you make of this guy. It's not going to go well. So that's... That's one big, you know, the self-effacing is mainly what we do. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, humor, I think the, the English language certainly lends itself a lot to the wordplay because it's such a mess of a language that it's great that most words have two meanings. So if you, you know, you could land a cheeky little pun because of the play on words, the play on sentences to get nerdy. I think it's called paranomasia. These interactions of phrases that can mean different things, mm-hmm. which lets you do things from puns to longer, like wordplay type things. Yeah. And they, they're often, you know, you don't want to do them too much. Otherwise they get cheesy, but we are gifted a language that is such a mess. You can make fun and deliberate, willful misunderstandings out of things. Um, so yeah, we're, we're gifted with quite a lot of jokes you can do just by the fact that we've got this language. I'm going to be interested to see what the uh, audio transcription service makes of that word after this show as well. Uh, but yeah, Paranoid great. maze what? <laughs> It'll come out as something completely different, I can guarantee it. Uh, it it's interesting to think about these things. I mean, we, we get, uh, particularly in the UK, we get a lot, a lot of comedy shows from the US, a lot of comedy shows from, you know, maybe some from Australia as well, and certainly thing, things would be hits for different reasons. Um, but not all the humour from the UK translates out. Like I, I've talked about a few times that um, living in Spain for the last eight or so years, uh, my humour is, uh, I think at best you could describe it as sort of bawdy, smutty humour. You know, like most of my jokes are really, that I would tell in my friends group would be pretty mm. smutty. I have friends who will vouch for that. And yet, you know, coming to, coming to Spain, trying to tell my jokes and sort of make my friends here laugh, 
um, even no, not in English, telling jokes in English to uh, a, a Spanish audience who speak English, they don't land. They're, most of the time, most of them don't land. Some of them, but most of them don't. Uh, and there are many different, many different reasons for that. Some of it is like not not getting the uh, wordplay, not getting the the dual meanings, or even more the dual meanings sometimes to things. Um, but some of it is also just because sometimes um, no, the carry on humour that I grew up with just doesn't doesn't really exist here so much. And so I, I saw that as being a, a challenge and an opportunity to find new ways of being funny that would work here. And, and, I, and I think I'm getting there. I, th- I think I'm figuring, figuring it out over time, ways to be funny to a, to a more international audience. I'm, I'm quite privileged here that I have um, connections here from the um, US, from Australia, from other, other parts of the world, and, and many from around Spain as well. Many, uh, most of the English speaking people uh, who I network with, and that I'm finding ways to be humorous and entertaining with uh, with all these groups, and to still keep keep things funny, but even in a light kind of way. If I had to put together a a comedy set, that might be a bit <laughs> a bigger <laughs> challenge. That I'm not sure I'd be I'd be ready to meet. But uh, in terms of uh, something like the uh, making a room full of, of people laugh, which uh, I think we've hit on a few bits of this as well, but what would be some of the, the best points? Like if, you, if, I, if I wanted to do a comedy set, how can I get the whole room laughing? Um, so it's important to learn the difference between things that are funny and things that make people laugh. And that's one of the hardest things when it comes to doing stand-up as opposed to other types of comedy. So I've written for the radio before when you do sketches without an audience, and therefore you can do something that is funny and people will like it for being funny but they didn't laugh out loud in the car or if, you know, if they're sat at home, they're not going to laugh out loud. Everything you do on stage needs to be a laugh out loud, funny moment, which um, means you've got to get people's attention. I have a firm, and this is no official theory here, but it's my belief that you need people to be really paying attention to you both with the conscious and subconscious mind, because something you see that happens a lot, if you're on stage and there's a noise that's, that gets people's attention, but they don't look away, it will kill that punchline. Because if they're not, in all of their brain at the same direction, you know, pointing at you to get the joke on the different levels that you're doing. You don't elicit the laugh response. At the end of it, they'll be like, oh yeah, that was funny, but there's no laugh. Um, Groups are really important. If you sit at home watching a comedy show, you might not laugh out loud as much as if there was loads of people there. So the size of an audience makes a big difference as well. So don't expect too much if you've got a small gig with like six people. That's not going to, you know, you'll never get the same response if you get 200 people in a room. Yeah. Um, and the other great thing of getting the numbers game, if there's 200 people in a room and half the room finds something funny, it's going to come across like a good joke. Six people in a room and half the room finds it funny, it's going to be awkward. Um, <laughs> so yeah. that's that's important. It's a big difference. And um, punchlines that are punchy. So the thing about keeping your, your comedy functional word to the end, really good. Um, having jokes that have that pullback reveal mechanism, it's, it's overused a lot, but people res- laugh more because there's that release of tension. Um, There are different theories about why we make that noise out of our face holes when we find something funny. And one of them is that it's a a release of tension because quite often a joke will set up a situation that needs to be resolved, uh, almost like a problem that needs to be solved or a riddle that needs an answer. And then you solve it with a punchline and there's a lot of emotional kind of like, hey, I see what that was now. Um, um, But also if I were to give you an insider tip to getting laughs on an early gig, do something that's got nostalgia in it. 
because people just connect to that so much more easily. Instead of trying to find that observation about a new thing that's really difficult and it's great when you do it because people are like, oh, I hadn't noticed that before. If you can be talking about stuff that people already know about themselves, you can land a few gags early and make that audience be on your side. Um, and that, yeah, all of these things, if you take them too far, you end up doing too many pullback reveals or too many puns, or you sound like a radio presenter going, what's your favorite sweet for when you're a kid? But <laughs> if you go close to all of these cliche type things, you just pull them into your set and yeah. then you can get, get people on your side, which I suppose is becoming my big theme. That's what it's all about. I was, I was just wondering whether a, whether a set about the kids from fame TV show from the eighties might be a bit too niche on the nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> Although the thing is, this is why another reason why some jokes don't travel. Um, you can get so many nice laughs from that. If, if you, if it's something that everyone watched in that gig, it's going to work so well. It's going to feel like a shared moment and nostalgia's it's gone through the filter. Like things in the modern day, you're aware of its positives and its negatives, but things you remember from your teens, you've got rid of all the negatives and you just, everything is better in your brain. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, you make that set try and travel and all of a sudden it's not going to work. Because <laughs> whenever I do gigs uh, across Europe, you get booked for a few of them. You really have to sit down and rewrite the set thinking, yeah, this is not going to bring the audience together. You know, how often will these people have watched the TV show I'm referencing or traveled on the tube and, you know, you got to make sure it's all about yeah making sure the references check with the audience right so you things like pop culture references you have mm. to be able to make sure that they are common pop culture references just as much as you would need to be careful using idiomatic language in a presentation you know i know like one of my friends uh, around the time when little britain was like very popular in in the uk that uh, that he was using a lot of the catchphrases and stuff like that in his in and some of the uh, doing his versions of some of their characters in his um, trainings events and uh, and live speaking and and it was working very well with certain audiences, but only with audiences who actually got it because they watched the show. And anyone who's never seen it is going to think, "What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> uh, what, why is he being this crazy?" Um, but yeah, so it has to it has to match in there. I wanted wanted to come back to something about um, it's an interesting fear that a lot of public speakers have. That um, I know I had when I first started out as well. And you mentioned about being heckled, and I don't think it's really something that most people in the world of professional speaking generally need to worry too much about but comedians for some reason do and um, have you had experience of that and if you have how do you deal with that yeah it happens it happens a fair bit um i honestly think i i suffer it less um than i probably could because i think it goes really back to like the the core brain that i'm i'm six foot two and you know bald-headed, stubbled, it probably means that fewer people get aggressive than they would do. You know, there's visible signs of testosterone, I suppose, stop certain audience members wanting to have a go. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, I don't, I don't learn any stock lines. There's a thing that you can do in stand-up. There are so many little put-downs if someone's heckling, but I'd rather not do that because when you're another comedian on the side of the stage watching someone use them, I think you think less of the person. I've certainly seen people use stock lines and it may get a great laugh because, you know, you've just used this standard line to put down an annoying audience member. But from the side of the stage, I think, well, 
that's not really what I value in someone using comedy, like speed of thought and coming up with something in that moment is what I want. So I try and do that. I, if ever I have a problem with a heckler, I'll try and make the retort something about what they've just said, because that tends to work. And it should work better as well. People's fear is that the audience are somehow given an advantage because you're on stage and they can share anything and what you're going to do then. But actually, you're on stage, well lit with a microphone, and you're probably sober. Mm. And the audience have had a few, maybe, and they can shout something from down there, but not everyone in the audience is going to hear it. So they don't have the power in the room at all. And after you've gigged for long enough, I think if you can't take down a heckler, then you've you've missed a trick. You know, you should have been learning that as part of the training. And you shouldn't really ever ever fear. The only th- caveat to that I would say is not all hecklers need to be, you know, absolutely dismantled. If someone says something genuinely funny, there is a tendency with comedians, and I feel it as well, to try and come up with a little topper line, to try and reclaim the being the funny one in the room. There's nothing wrong with admitting that is really funny. And you can do it in a way that doesn't have to break the rapport, makes that person your friend, and you can plow on. And I think it's our ego that stops us doing that. And of course, comedians are absolutely full of ego. Why else would you be uh, yeah. still on stage? Yeah. I think anyone who's standing up on the stage to some yeah. degree is there with uh, with a bit of ego, right? I mean, it's uh, no, nobody's up there because they want to suck at what they're doing or want yeah. people to tell them how bad they were afterwards. Everyone's up there hoping that they can they can make a, an impression, whether it's for delivering a message or whether it's just making people laugh or whatever. There, there's there probably has to be an element of ego involved because mm. we are beings of ego uh, I, I don't think you can really take it away and if you did i think it would make the dullest probably presentation you've ever seen in your whole life yeah. it, it would be like going to meditate or something which uh, <laughs> <laughs> which i don't think too many people are going to pay for to, to be honest but. yeah if I, on that i think it's interesting that a lot of the flaws of humanity if we're talking about the comedy side of it or the humorous side of it need to be there so yeah having an ego that's maybe a bit bigger than it should be is a flaw, but that's the kind of thing that you can use to connect with people and maybe not necessarily getting everything right. It doesn't have to be a thing that means the the performance or the presentation is going downhill. It can be a moment of connecting. You know, if, if, if tech doesn't work, if it doesn't work all the way through, it's going to be an absolute nightmare. But the first time a piece of technology doesn't work, there's bound to be a joke that works with it. Uh, and technology at some point is not going to work. It's better that that adds to a, a moment and experience than makes the person on stage become flustered. And then you lose confidence. And as an audience, if you don't have confidence with the person on stage, you're not going to laugh at anything they say, because then I think you start to worry if it's okay to laugh at them. You know, if, if someone looks like they're having a really bad time and this happens when like a death on stage, when the audience can tell it's not going well for you, even the nice people stop laughing because it never feels right. And you don't want to laugh at, you want to laugh with. Yeah. So you don't want to, as soon as you like sour the milk, then that, then, then, then you lose the room. Um, so yeah, I think flaws are actually one of the things that brings us all together in that humorous way. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought about it, but I mean, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and I like, I, I like thinking about you and different things. So it's like you've introduced me to, to a concept I hadn't really thought about before. Um, for for anyone who is maybe sort of thinking they want to actually give stand-up comedy a go, what's the best way to actually get started? Or is, is, should they do a comedy course? Should they just find an open mic night? I mean, what, what do you think is actually a good way to, to give it a go? 
I was never in favour of the comedy courses for years and years. Um, I said I didn't do one when I started because I I wanted to learn the hard way in a sense. And I I think there is still a valid uh, discussion to be had about learning the hard way will teach you different things. But you can do the course and it would teach you some of the techniques that you would pick up anyway in your first year of comedy. Will it will it be will it end up being part of your core identity on stage if you learn it from a course than through the hard knocks of gigs? I don't know. I I'd rather I think learning it in that crucible of tough gigs means that a year later when you're on stage and then it is really ingrained and it's muscle memory and it can come out whenever. I think there's there's an advantage there. But courses get people through their nerves better. That's what I've, yeah. I've now learned. People tell me how, what it was like for them. They go along, they have a fun time doing the course. Um, they learn some useful things that if they never do stand up, they'll be better in life in general because they, they'll get you know more confidence with humorous word usage. Um, and they often present you with a really easy gig at the end of it. Because the other thing would be to contact places that have open mic nights and to go along and try it. And it's always going to be tough. But if you're going along to a night that's specifically put on for people who have all done a course, and often the audience is made up of supportive friends and family of everyone who's on the course, it will be one of the easiest gigs of your life. I can, yeah, I'm now old enough and less cynical enough to realize that's not a bad way to do it. But I still, the hardcore part of me thinks, no, book a gig, write five minutes of material, see what happens. And one of the most important lessons that people learn from stand-up is the worst thing that could happen, the worst-case scenario that everyone gets the fears and the sweats about and will wake up in the middle of the night before the first gig, it's not actually that bad. Like, if it's an open mic night, a small room of strangers won't like your jokes. That's it. And as soon as you get over that and realize, oh, that's, that's not so bad, that you can then draw that line. It will never get worse than that. So keep trying. Uh, I, I do remember the part, I suppose it was my first year of doing gigs, the moment where I was thinking, oh, this gig's not going well. I can't wait for tomorrow's. And that, because you know, like tonight's audience aren't judging you for the rest of your life. All you've got to do is get through this, try your best, and then tomorrow probably it'll go well. Yeah, I think like anything that you started in like one, I know when I first started in the world of professional coaching that um, for a while I felt like, my coaching was only as good as my last client. It was like, yeah. if a coaching session went well, I was riding high. If it went really badly, which it did sometimes in my early days, uh, is this really the right job for me? Should I be doing this? Maybe I'm not very good, you know. And get took a long time to get to that, well, huge long time, but it took a while to get to that level of just being able to think, no, I'm actually, on average, pretty funny, pretty oh, not funny in coaching but i'm pretty good at this i can do this um i can work with the clients i can help people get results i can um do a good job here so even if a coaching session perhaps doesn't go so well i I probably understand more why it's not going so well i'm not thinking that it means that i'm terrible at what i'm doing it's similar kinds of things that come up regardless of what you go into that you might be new at i think you have to have that willingness to suck at it as you get started And, and get past that. And so with comedy particularly, where I think uh, so much ego is tied up in that, and uh, same with public speaking as well, uh, to, to a degree, that it's, um, it feels like a very personal judgment if it doesn't go well. Yeah. And I, yeah, especially stand-up comedy, there are other types of comedy, if there's like sketch groups or if there's acting involved, I'm sure you are given a bit more of a protective coach. That if the audience don't like the character that you're acting, you won't like it, but you won't take it as personally, even though I think stand-up comedy is a performance and acting, but we're acting a heightened version of ourselves. 
which means you're still vulnerable to an audience not liking you. You take it personally. But that the thing that makes you bulletproof and eventually you get that confidence, which I think people like when they see people on stage, is the back catalogue of all the times it's gone well. If you've done 400 gigs and enough of them, like a really high percentage, have been great, if someone in an audience shouts, you're not funny, it's not going to convince you. And that's all you need it to do, to be a, a you know, someone can shout something, doesn't make it true, because now you have a, a belief, a sense and a feeling of what you're doing and how you're enjoying it. Mm. And then that just means you've got the confidence to come back to them or to plow on, or even if they're right in that evening. You know, you don't quit because one person doesn't enjoy your joke. Actually, this is also true. I should say this. If you are starting comedy, you will fall foul of the noticing the one person not laughing effect. <laughs> right. Um, there's a drawing on social media I saw once, which is like a drawing of an audience. And then it says what a comedian sees. And it's just the miserable face down the bottom. And it is so true. And an entire audience could be laughing. And at any point, every joke's not going to be laughed at by 100% of the audience. Some of them are taking a drink. Some of them are, didn't quite hear it because they were still laughing from the last one. But we are so tuned to spotting the miserable face. And I now can't remember the name of the comedian who I was talking to about this. And he had a lovely story where he said, yeah, he did a gig. And there was someone on the front row who looked miserable. And it's ruining the gig for the guy on stage. And he's playing the material straight to him. He's trying to cheer him up. And it's not happening. So the gig goes technically well, but the guy didn't enjoy it. And afterwards, the guy comes up to him and went, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed your set. He's like, really? You look really miserable. And he said, yeah, sorry, but my mother had just died. And it just highlights your brain. You go, yeah, don't judge someone. You don't know why they're not smiling. You're making it so all about you. Like, how dare you not smile at the front of the gig? No, just give as much as you can to this room. But don't judge its return to you because you're probably going to be wrong. You know, worst case scenario, he wasn't enjoying it. Everyone else in the room was. I, I but, can't really imagine going to a comedy show if my mum had just died. But Well, yeah. do you know what? I mean, people go with groups and yeah. you, you get these people, or, you know, they could have just been fired or you get people who think, oh, this will be good for, for him or her. Let's take her along to a comedy club to cheer them up. Yeah. And it actually isn't about the sensibilities of the person on stage. You know, we're both talking about that today, yeah. about what it would be like to be the person on stage cracking the jokes. But... It's not about whether we enjoy it, really. It's about whether the audience enjoy it first and foremost, and we should enjoy it from there. Well, that, that is a big part of it. I mean, this is the whole thing about it's not about you on stage. It's about the audience ultimately at the end of the day. It's one of the things that uh, any um, personal uh, trainer or speaker in public speaking is going to say to, uh, you know, if you're coaching someone in public speaking or presentation work, it's one of the top tenets that you have to live by that is not about you, it's about them. That's why you have to work hard on very quickly getting to that point where you can get out of your head and not make it about you and not get into the, you know, what is it about me? What am I doing wrong? Or um, just make it about just deliver the best you can and do do the show, that you can, um, the presentation performance that you came to do. It's just as much in, in professional speaking or even amateur speaking that uh, every speech is a performance and it can either be a, a performance that's full of life and fun or enjoyment or it can be a performance that's full of um, heavy data and uh, is putting your audience to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't use too much data in jokes. I'd agree with that. <laughs> L- luckily, luckily. So some of, the, some of the comedians that I've spoken to so far uh, in the podcast have said about having a character how important it is to have a character as a comic on the stage do do you feel that you have that did you have to find a particular persona that you are when you get on the stage or do you kind of just get up there and feel that you're just yourself 
Yeah, I think it, I think heightened version of myself is a nice way that I that I look at it because it then lets you edit out the bits that you don't want and really focus on the ideal version of who you'd want to be on stage. So it's just like a it's like in in those sitcoms in America where the main character has the same name, you know, like Roseanne or Everybody Loves Raymond, like where you are just a version of yourself that suits the jokes better. Right. So it's all based on on real me. So I know what I'm writing. They always say write what you know, um, but then you get to edit out all the bits that complicate, that muddy the water, that ruin the joke. So you end up being a, a purer version of the emotion that you're trying to get across, I think. It's like um, it's the, the Larry David thing, um, Kirby Enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. Whenever I've seen him interviewed, he, he just says that he wishes he could be that version of Larry. And we all believe he is. So, yeah, you, the, I suppose the difference between doing stand-up comedy is that we can effectively lie there are jokes that I've got that were based on news stories, but then it's no longer topical. So I make it about me or, a, or a, an ex. I have a rule. If ever I'm writing a joke about a partner, it always gets said as a joke about an ex on stage because I don't think it's fair to use someone as a muse in a way that you know could come back to me in a bad way. Um, so there's so many tweaks that makes these things not real. Um, whereas if you are, if you're doing a presentation, you probably don't get to to lie that much to. You can't really come off stage and someone say, oh, I didn't know you went rock climbing three years ago. And you say, oh, it was just for a bit. We can do that as stand-ups. But if you have to be more genuine, it means you can't take the jokes as quite as far. Yeah, I think if you are actually telling a, a story about yourself or your life um, or your experience, it should be true. Uh, mm-hmm. you, might, you might make some tweaks. Uh, you know, one of the common storytelling tweaks from professional storytellers is, to, is a temporal tweak, that stuff that may have happened over a period of time. You might shorten into the space of a, a few days and uh, um, make so so that the action is tighter and um, happens a, a lot quicker but the actual essence of the story stays true uh, mm-hmm. you might not include the names of certain people who you might you might not want to mention uh, on stage or you might be a bit more general about who they are but so long as that doesn't um, damage the the actual story that you're telling yeah it pretty much needs to be true and I guess in the world of joke telling the kind of stories you might use there you maybe have a bit more flexibility because the main purpose there is, isn't necessarily to elicit uh any other specific emotion other than laughter yeah i think um probably in the the 70s and when you know the comedians that kind of format where people would be telling jokes they were just telling stories about an obviously fictional person who went into a bar and did something yeah. and now those days are gone there's more pressure on us to try and make it seem like it was real, even when it wasn't. Um, and I can totally understand why, because the same joke about, you know, three blokes walking into a bar is actually funnier. If you're saying I went to this bar the other day and boom, you're in the story. You can bring with it. I think we just got better at this narrative telling this way of getting the emotions more involved. Um, but yeah, it does mean sometimes you think, well, it would have been funnier if that happened. I'll just say it happened. Because if you're a comedian, you don't want to spend all day with the but what if moments. If it's funnier to just say it happened, just say it. You know, you, you're there to to make people laugh and not tell the truth about stories that no one's ever going to check. Um, when you, when you're on stage, though, like if you've had those experiences where maybe you're not feeling the connection with the audience or some of your stuff isn't landing, do you do you push on through or do you do you start to we need to shake things up a bit? You can try and change gears. Um, there's a big tendency to try and address it. I don't, I don't think you want to address it too much. Otherwise, it becomes 
like narrating your own failure. Um, but there's nothing wrong with addressing the elephant in the room sometimes. It's like one of those things where, like a tech failure, joke about it once, but if, you're, if all you're doing is complaining about technology, it's not funny. Um, you can cash in the joker every so often of saying, oh, that bit didn't work. Um, you, know, you, can, you can make a joke about a bit failing, but if all you're doing is tagging that onto the end of every single bit you're doing, it's just not working. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't plow on. Um, I think I'd often, you know, you, it's time to drop a bit of material and try something that is of a different category of humor. But you just have to keep trying. I mean, you never know. That's the weird thing. Even when you have a bad gig, it can always turn to a good one and you never know which minute it's going to happen in. And you want it to happen sooner rather than later. But I tell you what, the best way to get off stage is when it's just suddenly gone well. If you're not having a great one and the last bit of material has just stormed and you look at your watch, you think, oh, it's nearly time. Don't push it. Don't, don't risk that. Oh, now I've got them. I'll do another bit. No, leave on the left. That, that's, I think that's pretty sound advice. And it's interesting to me that uh, certain comedians, like people like Ricky Gervais, have said things like nothing, nothing really should be off limits in comedy. But do you think there's the stuff that maybe should be or, or is really off limits that people are just never going to laugh at? Um, I, and I, I agree that nothing should be off limits, but everything should be funny. So it's no excuse to do something that people don't like and that is tasteless and people don't laugh at and say, well, it's just a joke. No, anything, any topic or rather every, no joke should be banned because of its topic, but it had better be funny. And it had also, I think there's probably a correlation to the dodgier the topic, the funnier that joke had better be. Um, and I'm not in favor of jokes that, that punch down jokes that victimize and, and insult and make someone's life worse, but there are jokes on any topic that actually uh, punches up or shows a truth that maybe we need to talk about. And if, if we fall into the way of thinking of you can never do a joke about this topic, you then get rid of all the jokes that could help bring us together. Um, I'm not necessarily sure we're going through a time when people want to be brought together. If we think about what social media is like, we're all in our tribes and people enjoy getting offended at what someone has said so that they can then try and get that person to be silenced. Hopefully that will end. And one of the things that I think comedy can do if we're less sensitive about, oh, you can't joke about subject, is to judge the joke, not the topic. And it might bring us together on some of those topics. Who, for you, are some of your comedy legends and heroes or heroines? Um, the, I've recently watched quite a lot of Robin Williams stuff again, but I remember watching that growing up. And the odd thing is I'm, I don't have a style that is anywhere near that energetic. Although I think on stage I end up um, looking like I'm expending more energy than I think I am. Because uh, on, on stage I feel quite chilled, but afterwards I look at how much material I've got through and you know some gigs maybe I am pushing it a bit. But his, the energy of his brain was inspirational to me as a teenager. Um, I mean, the first thing I really got into in terms of comedy was Marx Brothers films. Groucho Marx, that, that kind of wordplay. So I think I, I started to learn the punnery of the Marx Brothers. And then I got into comedy as a general topic. And one of the things that happened is that my mum and dad bought me a, a secondhand video recorder, um, which, I, you know, it was cheap and it kept chewing up the tapes like you wouldn't believe. But I started recording comedy that was on TV way past my bedtime. So I watched loads of stand-up comedy and then that kind of changes your brain a bit. You've got to watch loads of it to understand the rules. So um, Robin Williams definitely changed the way I thought about what you could do being stood on stage saying words out loud. Um, this is probably 
controversial these days. I really relatively recently got into watching a lot of Ellen DeGeneres' stand-up hmm. from before she had the TV show, the Ellen sitcom TV show. I know now there's some sort of controversy about the work environment on the TV chat show. Apparently so, yeah. About yeah. It may, may not be the nicest person in Hollywood. Well. Yeah. But so, but now look at me now. I'm, I'm falling into my own trap of thinking, oh, should I not like someone's humor because I've heard some rumor about what they like to work with? I've watched the stand up, and that's that's a, a good example of what the slow pace can do, like the way in which you can bring an audience in by making them come to the joke rather than trying to throw everything out with too much oomph. I, yeah, I, I love Ellen's humor, and you know, even before her, um, even even before her chat show, her sitcom was absolutely one of my favorites but her, her stand-up was was lovely as well i don't think she ever punches down in it i think she has very gentle observational humor that is very insightful and, and really shows how she has a very you know, she has a unique perspective on stuff i'm a big fan but yeah it's interesting to say that um there are certain people who we're not allowed to find funny anymore there are cert- there are certain types of music that we're not supposed to enjoy anymore because these people have fallen out of favor you know we can't um we're not supposed to like louis ck anymore because of all the, the stuff that he's done is like you know it's been blacklisted effectively right and it's yeah. it's kind of interesting that uh it's like well people who were uh, on a sort of trajectory before suddenly have that taken away from them are they now not funny? Are their jokes now not funny because we know something about them? Yeah. I mean, I think if someone does something distasteful, it will change your view of their humor. And as we said earlier on, stand-up comedy is yourself or a version of yourself. So you have to be liked. And if something breaks that like, then that is going to change it. I mean, and it's a spectrum as well. So it's worth thinking that there will definitely be something that someone could do that would make you stop enjoying their earlier work. Um, so Bill Cosby is another example of uh, yeah. someone a lot of people enjoyed the stand-up of years and years ago, but now you wouldn't think of saying, I'll tell you who's my favorite comedian. Um, so there, it is true that someone's behavior will judge whether you think they're a good stand-up or not. Um, and I think it's it's probably more appropriate to make that judgment in stand-up than any other art form. Um, and it's, you know, it's definitely true in music as well. You know, If you don't have the good feeling by watching someone's work anymore then that's fine to not like them. It's the fault of the person for committing something that's not nice in the first place. I want to ask you a little bit about your own podcast, which is uh, Comics Solving Problems. Where, where, did that, uh, where did that come from? So that was, that was the lockdown. And um, so coronavirus hits, UK lockdown kicks in, and comedians were made illegal. And it was interesting to go from, yeah, comedians like to pretend that we are the rebels, the, the outlaws. And as soon as we were made technically outlawed, we were like, oh, no, I don't like this anymore. I'd like to earn some money, please. Um, so we had nothing to do. And lots of people started to do online stand-up comedy gigs. Mm. And they don't really work if you don't have the audience there to interact with and everything about the format wasn't quite right. And I was working with a a comedian friend of mine. We've done a lot of Edinburgh shows together. And he said, look, we should do a version of one of the Edinburgh shows online where we, the last one we did, we were taking moral questions from the audience and just having fun with answering them because it's an easy position to be. If you're two comedians on stage, someone can ask you a moral question. You're going to get a laugh by walking down the, no, I'd just do it. I'd just nick it kind of test the moral boundaries of the audience. Um, so we made it about problems this time. And if I'm brutally honest, we were still filming the last series of The Mash Report, but I responded really badly to the start of the lockdown because a lot of my radio work disappeared, all the stand-up work disappeared. I've never been jobless in my life before, and suddenly I had nothing to do. So 
I spent like a good good couple of weeks lying on the sofa moaning about life. Um, and he said, look, let's just do this. And I was convinced it wasn't going to work. I was like, oh, you do it if you want. No one's going to watch it. And thank heavens I listened to him because we ended up doing this comedy show. The interaction really picked me up. So it was great to have something to write for and having people we could connect with as if we were on stage. And the reason I think it works better than, than I thought, because it wasn't stand-up. We weren't trying to mimic the thing that you can't get unless you're in a room with people with that vibe. We were doing a show where we basically looked at the news, boiled news stories down to problems and have a go at solving them. So it's effectively a topical comedy show that really gets to the nub of the issues. Yeah. And during it, in the message boards, people were coming up with, oh, what would you do about this? Or how do you, you know, which, how do, would you solve my problem? So it's, it's improv, it's scripted. And then I started to, um, to, to get obsessed with filming things beforehand. And it was better when we weren't allowed to even leave the house. There was a time when we were allowed to exercise once a day yeah. and go to a shop, but, you know, don't buy too much. Um, and so during that time, I was trying to film sketches and all I had were the rooms in this place. Um, if we just, that, and that's why I'm here today, that we set it up so it looks like we are just in our spare rooms because we were. Like, why hide from it? Let's just be, and we get dressed up in the suits because we're technically on telly is what we're saying. Right. But clearly just in spare rooms, enjoying the the enforced misery of lockdown, trying to make humor out of it. Well, I think uh, Michael Spicer has done very well from that, right? The yeah. voice in the other room. So. Yeah, I mean, he's been, he's been filming stuff for ages because he also does stuff on the Mashup. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, he's been, he's great at filming stuff. In fact, it, I mean, it's so good that he's got this fame now and he's done stuff with James Corden in America off the back of it. He also should have broken years ago. People should have seen how funny he was and he should have been on more things. Absolutely, yeah. What would be some of the examples of some of the problems that you've solved on your show so far then? I've really enjoyed all the mask ones because people are just having weird responses to it. Um, so, yeah, I've done making masks out of underwear and, uh, you know, live demonstrations. Um mm-hmm. They're also like problems that don't need to be. So I, I love pointing these ones out as well. When they were trying to reopen things in the UK quite early on, you know, people were worried about pubs. That'd be great. And then they started paying attention to zoos. Well, I suppose, you know, there are animals to feed, but who was crying about not getting to go to a zoo during a global pandemic <laughs> and then museums. You're kidding me. Who needs to go to a museum? I mean, at no point during the lockdown did that become my big problem. So then I was filming sketches around the place pretending, you know, everything else got done at home. So I made my home version of a museum to solve that one, which was just me looking at a wall, pretending it was a work of art, <laughs> trying to go like, I like what he's done with the emotional of this thing of this piece. Um, what other problems? Yeah, the a lot of, so um, my comedy partner's American. So he does a lot of stuff about Trump. And that's been great seeing, you know, the bleach phase. Oh, you know, someone who's got that much power just having a guess at bleach. Should we try that? No. <laughs> it says on the bottom. inject that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the things to try first. Have you tried bleach? You're not going to try much else afterwards, are you? Um, so, yeah, all the news stories, as they've been happening, we've been trying to solve them. And the joke is that we don't solve them, obviously. You know, we're, if we were sure. actually good at solving them, I'm sure we'd be getting paid way more and we'd be working in government. <laughs> Well, since when have government been good at solving <laughs> problems? You know, uh, so a lot of people said, particularly in the US, like Trump, Trump has to some degree almost killed comedy because it, it's hard to be more ridiculous. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I like the challenge, though. I mean, if it, there are always jokes that you could do. I actually think at some point, if we tally up how much money Donald Trump has made for comedians, you know, maybe we uh, he should be tax deductible or something. He's probably paid for quite a lot of mortgages because there, there are always some jokes to do. He's always saying something. And that's yeah. probably part of how the system works these days, that if you can say something so outrageous, it pulls media focus. You can do whatever you want because everyone's talking about the typo in a tweet and actually we should be better than than paying attention to that but actually i mean we're not we're, we're comedians of course if there's a, a rude typo in a tweet by donald trump we're gonna have a laugh at it but <laughs> yeah, exactly. society should probably pay attention to the bigger issues more well yeah i don't know what randy rainbow is going to sing about once trump's gone but uh, i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure he'll find something but yeah certainly a lot of comedians have been made off of this as well yeah. but i think it's certainly been perhaps a bit more of an issue for uh, some of the political-based comedy shows or even the political comedians to uh, to sort of stay ahead of that and to try and make what's already hilarious in some degrees, although scary hilarious, um, to try and put even a different funny spin on that. Uh, interesting challenges that uh, may- maybe not too dissimilar what's going on in the UK at the moment. Yeah. Like, uh, I think uh, Mr Johnson invites ridicule to some degree as well. Yeah, and the the speed with which these things happen. Because they happen so easily, you get many of them quite a lot. So we do the show twice a week, like Thursday and Tuesday nights. And if something is funny on the weekend, it's almost gone by the time we get to a Tuesday night. It doesn't matter what you've written. There will have been something else that's ridiculous that yeah. probably feels like it needs to be talked about. So that I think that's the big challenge for political and, and topical comedians normally there would be a gaff that would go on for so long and you get three weeks worth of material out of some mistake but no there'll be another mistake along in two days so don't even write jokes about this one right. Do you, actually i don't know if you, you can remember how back when there was a supermarket that had some horse meat in its burgers uh-huh. oh that was a year's worth of jokes now if that happened on a thursday you don't do a joke about it on a saturday but it's such old news yeah, the new cycle moves very quickly these days, even though it seems like everything's kind of repeating on Corona the whole time. Um, the the actual machinations that are going on in the political world are uh, giving us stuff to, stuff to report on every single day. There's a, a, a new bit of crazy, or there's like, even just this week, uh, uh, all, de- all deciding that we're going to break the law or break international re- treaties. And uh, okay, well, that's uh, going to be newsworthy for at least a few more days. And then... <laughs> Like you say, we'll, we'll move on to something else. There'll be another. Yeah. There'll be another crisis or another unbelievable thing going on. It's uh, it's hard to keep track of, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how the effects that that has are again as a tool of influence and persuasion. Like the confusion that gets brought in, even through the the news cycle, and from people not being able to really keep up with everything that's going on, mm. uh, to some degree, it is a form of uh, almost a form of mind control because it's leaving people in a sense of not really knowing what's true anymore not knowing what's right or wrong anymore and uh you know i think one of the things with comedy is that it is uh probably um, so essential right now giving people something to hold on to that it feels like maybe a bit more constant like a bit more the stuff that makes us laugh will keep making us laugh and uh, there's something about the the truths that get told as well I think that is something that people are feeling they don't have perhaps in other areas that where everything seems to be mixed up, twisted, and, and they don't know who to believe. Yeah. And one thing I do think comedy can do is relieve some of the pressure that we're in. So even if, if we didn't have the COVID situation, 
um, whenever there is something in the news that is impacting or making you worry in some way, a joke about it does so much good for mental health. Because if there's something that's you know making your cortisol levels rise and you're worried about this thing, if someone can puncture it in some way, whether it's effectively puncture it by pointing out like a logical flaw in what's being said, and then you can feel better about whatever that thing was that was worrying you, or even just mocking. We've got spitting image coming back on TV. Even if it's just the puppet of an MP who's making a decision that impacts your life, if that puppet mocks them, it probably makes it easier to deal with so you don't have to fill your body with adrenaline and all the things that happen from the stress. You can relieve that stress and live a better life, even if the rules don't change because of the comedy. Yeah, absolutely. If if you're in a position where... uh, you're at home, you're bored, you're in quarantine. Um, other than making comedy shows, how, how do you entertain yourself? How do you find humour in, in life in the day? It's interesting, actually. I mean, I'm writing so much comedy that I, I don't know if there is anything else. I mean, I've, I took up running again um, and then have done the same thing with that. So one of my favourite things to do on the way back from a run is to write a sketch for the shows because I think I write different jokes I think it's true. You write different things depending on where you are. So in the old days, um, I used to write at home, write in a coffee shop, and I could see the difference in the the jokes. Um, So I'd write in as many places as possible. So I think I've ended up doing that just within the small sphere of existence that we're still allowed these days. Um, Yeah, I watch comedy. I, I am just a comedy obsessive. I mean, every, the only thing I do that's not comedy is I'll watch I'll watch TV and films that aren't comedy, but that's because I like being more informed about a genre that I can take the mickey out of later. Um, so yeah, everything is quite ad, back towards it. I don't really do anything as a as a hobby that's not um, comedy based. In fact, it reminds me. I almost said earlier on when you were talking about enjoying your job, the thing about if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. It's also true that if you do what you love, you've got no hobbies because yeah. you know you, you anything that you love doing, you've turned into a job. Yeah. So what are you doing in your spare time? Why would I want spare time? I love my job. <laughs> it's a good point. It's uh, another problem for you to solve on your show, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as, we, as we sort of wrap things, wrap things up for today, is there any, are there any words of wisdom or advice, comedy related or not, that you would like to uh, share with a wider audience? Um, you know what I'd like to say? So this was the theme of my last Edinburgh show. And the theme was, uh, I have a theory that we all know how to be nicer people than we are. If you were forced to sit down and write a script, you would know which actions to give to the goody and which actions to give to the baddie. So we know if a behavior is good or not. And then we spend so much of our lives giving ourselves excuses to do these behaviors, whether it is feeling that, well, they did it, so I get to do it. So you have these this consequence-based one. Uh, if you can rearrange the roles of an interaction so that you're the victim, then you've got free reign to do whatever you want. Um, and and there's was, there was another thing I used to do on stage. This bit really never worked in the Edinburgh show, that um, we all know how to behave better even when we don't want to. So if you're in a bit of a mood and you get pulled over by the police, you'll be polite. And if you're in a mood and you have to take a phone call from the boss, you'll be polite. But as soon as you walk through that front door and you're with the one person you profess to love, you just let all that misery right out into their face. And so I I thought I'd really hit on something there where people in the audience would be like, yeah, I will treat my partner better. 
and the total opposite happened. It was the one bit in the set where everyone was like, oh, why should I have to be better? Like people would defend to, to their death the right to be really grumpy and unreasonable to their partner. So the take home message that I wanted from that show, and I'm still peddling now, as you can tell, is that we all know how to be better people than we're being. Stop giving yourself excuses for bad actions and just say that bad actions are bad. And then if we all end up being nicer, there'll be fewer road raid, road raid incidents, there'll be fewer wars, and everyone will be nicer on social media. And I'll say it out loud, and I know it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's a lovely idea. And, <laughs> right, it? and I <laughs> hope people take it to heart. And <laughs> certainly something that I hope I live my life by. And uh, Steve, I just want to say thank you so much for, for your time today. I hope people will come and check out your podcast. Are there any other ways that people might be able to check you out or find out more about you? Yeah, I'm on social media. So on Twitter, it's at Mr. Stephen Allen. And to be fair, most social media platforms, I've used that as the username, at Mr. Stephen Allen. Um, And yeah, we do the YouTube version of Comics Solving Problems. And yeah, just come and see that. And at some point, come and see a live gig. Because remember those? Yeah, so I might get to do more of those in the future. Excellent. Well, I have to. Have, you have to let me know when when you're on, and I'll I'll put it out with the with the show notes when you do your next live gig. And uh, in the meantime, hopefully, we get to see you on the Mash Report sometime soon as well. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, we don't know when the next series is coming back yet. I don't think, um, but at some point, let's fingers crossed because there's plenty of news that needs reporting on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for everything you shared. I really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to connecting with you again soon and wish you for success to success and plenty of stand-up gigs to come in your future. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to like and subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Come and check out the brand spanking new Facebook for fans of the show and people who want daily content on presentations, skills, and tools of influence and persuasion, facebook.com speaking influence. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy of my free ebook, The Five Key Beliefs of Bulletproof Business Speakers, go and visit presentinfluence.com. If you want to be a guest on the show, email me, john at presentinfluence, or come and connect with me in the Facebook group, Speaking Influence, and I'll look forward to speaking with you. Next week on the show, Monday, we'll be releasing an episode which I recorded live last week with the posh Cockney entrepreneur, Liam Norval. Great interview, great conversation. And next Friday, an episode will be coming out with comedian Mike Cox, really funny guy, great interview and a great chat once again. See you next time. Have a great week.